this morning's passage, as I mentioned a few moments ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 20. We've had an interesting week uh, with our elections. And if any of you are on Facebook, I bet you have read something along the lines of this. Okay, here's my last election topic or my last election post, my last thoughts before I give it up. You know, unfortunately, all of your friends are saying that. And then they're going into their reasons and their feelings and their emotions. And so I thought, hey, let's have a little bit of a break from politics. And let's talk about sex. (laughs) Actually, I didn't think this. Uh, The Apostle Paul did. I'm just here to report what I believe the Holy Spirit is teaching us. And what we'll find, last week we discussed in in the passage before that there was a, a man living with his stepmother sexually, and Paul had to write in and say, look, we need to talk about sexuality and sexual issues. And in Corinth, the reason we even chose this, I chose this letter to, to dig into is Corinth is very similar, I think, to America. In other words, it's very easy for modern man to say, oh, the Bible's so archaic. It's so old. It's so passe. I mean, Corinth puts us to shame. It's, 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 it's Las Vegas meets New York meets another really bad city, morally speaking. And, you know, I don't know what would be the third one? The one you don't like. You know, you just, L.A., okay, L.A. Enid, I don't know. Just kidding, Sackets. Norman. Did someone say Norman? Very nice. Bravo. Bravo. See, the sin just infects us all. Um, and and because, the reason it's so like that is because it was this Greek colony that had been destroyed and then re, reestablished by Rome. And it just overnight became a boom town. And there wasn't really one dominant religion, so all these religions are coming in. They revived a lot of the old temples, much of which, some of which had prostitution as part of their worship ceremony. And so for that church, when Paul planted it, that church um, had a lot of questions about how do we engage, how does the church engage culture? And that's a big issue for us today, I think we would say more and more the church is wondering and struggling with how do we not bash culture, but how do we not look exactly like the culture around us? How do we remain distinctively Christian in light of all that's going on around us? Um, And so we're going to look at that this morning. So if you'll follow along in your Bibles, verses 9 to 20. Or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all are bene- not all things are beneficial. Excuse me, but not all are things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I, then take, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? 
Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are our God, that you are the one who has redeemed us, you've rescued us through your Son. And Lord, you have not left us as orphans, but you've sent your Spirit into our hearts by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And this morning we cry out, Abba, Father. We need wisdom. We need help. Teach us to not be um, angry at the culture, but teach us also not to accept everything the culture does. Rather, teach us to be citizens of heaven. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, This is a tough topic, tough text. Um, You know, sexuality. One of the things that makes it really challenging for me is as I've studied this passage a lot, I'm convinced that one of the driving themes for Paul is not just sexuality, but freedom. And so when you think about what sexuality is, often you'll talk to people, it's an expression of their freedom. And we live in a very confused culture. You know the issues that are going on as far as what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable, with gender questions, with sexuality as far as you know, homosexual, heterosexual. Um, I won't even go into all the different terms. There's so many. But we really, as a church, are being somewhat bombarded with the questions, and we don't know how to handle it. And yet, we come to this passage, and it seems like this will be easy. We'll just read this passage and then tell you what the Bible says and move on. But it's very difficult. And yet, as I studied the text, I realized Paul is really talking a lot about freedom. And what is freedom? And I think one of the underlying issues in any of this debate, if there is one, is that we as Christians have lost sight of what Christian freedom really is. What is it that Christian freedom is supposed to do for you? And so Paul, one of the books I've been reading, or I read a little bit this summer, I read in seminary, I'm being honest, great book, F.F. Bruce on Paul. I highly recommend the book. He titled it, Paul, an Apostle of the Heart Set Free. And so the question for all of us is, do we long for freedom? And you'll be proud of me for not using a Braveheart quote, by the way. Everyone's like, where is he going to be? Is he going to do the Braveheart? No, no, I'm not. Though I thought about it for two seconds. Do you long for freedom? And, and as we think about that question, how do you define freedom? Are you with our culture? Are you with your own and my own flesh that defines freedom as removing anything that hinders me from what I want to do? Or do you have a more biblical view of freedom, which is coming to be in union with the God who created you? Because that is the biblical view of freedom. That we have been redeemed by Jesus, we've been rescued, and now we are free to be in union with Christ. I'm going to say it, I'm going to read it. I hate doing this, reading my my notes because I always feel disengaged. But here's what we're talking about today. You will experience true freedom to the degree that you live out of your union with Christ. You're free, you will have more freedom when you live out of your union with Christ. Okay, So, that's what I'm hoping to convince you of this morning. I believe that's what the passage teaches. 
We'll jump in. We'll start with the freedom from guilt. Um, guilt. I think a lot of times we don't understand why we struggle with sin, and we think that as Christians we should not struggle anymore. And yet the Bible doesn't teach that at all. Uh, and and we, we tend to think that if we struggle with something, it would be better if we would just change our definition and become defined by it than to just keep struggling in it. Uh, so let's look at this verses 9 to 11, and we'll sort of dive in. Um, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. When you hear that, you and I, in our first blush, think, oh no, I'm on that list somewhere. It's very hard to not be on that list. And then we think, I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of God, right? Anyone fear that? Here's the context. Remember last week, Paul had mentioned there's this person in Corinth, probably of high uh, um, importance to the maybe financially to the congregation, who had been living with his stepmother. And Paul said, you need to expel that immoral brother. Excommunication. After all the steps had been taken. Well, as we know in 2 Corinthians, he immediately repented. Or not long later, said, I'm sorrowful. I want to come back. And he was saved. And, and that was the goal. In other words, it's not just that you engage in sin. It's that you, what Paul's warning against is hanging out the shingle of this is who I am now. This is what kind of person I'm going to be. And so then in chapter 6, he says, some of you, when you have issues among brothers, like legal issues or brothers and sisters, you go out into the world, out to the lawyers and the law people of the world, law people. Um, and he actually says in verse 1, do, does one dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And then he goes through how silly it would be to do that. And then in verse 9 he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? And he explains all of the conduct in that list. What Paul is doing is he's trying to drive home the fact that someone who is not saved, unrighteous person, can't deal with matters of righteousness legally. That's the heart behind that passage. And so he's not saying, here's this list of sins, and if you're anywhere on that list, watch out. But rather he's saying, here's a list of sins that probably the audience already agreed with are wrong. And if you live in those sins unrepentantly, there's a problem. But more importantly, what he is saying is, you have been freed from these. Listen to verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. He doesn't say, and such were all of you. And some of you might be washed. He's saying, if you're a believer, these words don't define you anymore. Right? Um, and and, and it's, you're freed from the guilt of those sins. But here's the dilemma that I feel like we're having in our culture in our Christian culture, and it's a dilemma before we get into the, the matters on the list, we don't like to struggle. Right? So the moment there's a struggle, we just go, that can't be right. And I want to, have you ever been on a diet? I'm going to make up a diet. It's called the no cookie diet. 
and your friend Stan has said to you, I'm not going to have any more cookies ever again. And you see Stan a month later, and guess what he says? Oh, I can have some cookies. What happened? Well, while you were away, Stan had a cookie. And he, he tried not to have one, and he had one. And the way he dealt with the guilt was, rather than saying, I'm a bad person, I shouldn't have had a cookie, as he said, I don't think the diet about no cookies is really a real diet. I think it's sort of an average, it maybe has some good ideas behind it, but we reshape it. We all do this, by the way, right? If you're a part of CrossFit, you, you start off on these awesome diets, and then a month later it's like, you know, I can have some dairy. You know, I can have a little. We're human after all. Well, in the same way, I think we don't like to struggle with sin. And there's one item on this list that used to be completely out of bounds in the church. In fact, it's so bad, it used to be out of bounds in society. But over time, society let it in. And eventually, the church has even started to let it in. I'm talking now in verse 10 of the word greed. In other words, every item on this list are things that you're not supposed to engage in, but if you engage in it unrepentantly, it defines you. Right? Greed. Okay, so let me now, uh, now we've got that out of the way. Homosexuality. That's on the list. Historically, the church has taught that homosexuality is a sin. And I completely affirm that. I think the scriptures confirm that. And I think we struggle because uh, we so, de- for, for quite a few reasons, and I have to be honest, and I want to say that Shane and I talked about this earlier. I'm going to have to make a disclosure. If you are really interested in this topic, this will not quench your appetite. We'll have to talk a little bit more later over coffee other format. I'm going to do a three-minute aside on that word because it is coming to such importance in our culture, especially the Christian culture. Um, The question would be, is this passage referring to monogamous loving relationships? Or, some people would argue, Bible-believing Christians who believe the Bible is the Word of God would say, what Paul is writing about there is not what you and I would think of as that word would mean. It doesn't mean homosexuality like a monogamous loving relationship. It usually means something more along the lines of out of marriage, uh, often in in the context of that culture, even a younger person with an older person. Um, In fact, if you look at the note on the ESV, I'll read my footnote to be as completely politically correct as possible. The two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. There are actually two Greek words there. Uh, for whatever reason, the ESV just shrunk it down to one of the two words. Um, but my, I would just quickly, to just deal with it before moving on, I would say, if Paul was only talking about out-of-wedlock homosexuality, why include it in the list at all, since he's already talked about adultery? Um, secondly, and probably more importantly for me, why in chapter 7, which we'll look at next week, when he comes back to the issues of marriage... He says uh, in verse 2, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And he repeats that again and again. Why not say, or, you know, if, if, if a man has a man and a woman have a woman, why would he not include that as an option? It does seem like he's talking here about what we would call homosexuality. So, wow. Now I'm going to move on. And now I've dealt with it. And many of you, some of you are like, yeah, yeah, he did it. Calm down. 
right? Some of you are like, whoa, I'm so offended. I hear you, and I want to talk with you, and I want to make sure you understand we're not trying to be cavalier about this difficult topic. What we want to be here at Grace is scriptural, bound by Scripture, and bound by the Gospel. And I hope as I continue this discussion, you'll at least know why I believe this about this entire list and about um, the rest of this discussion and how it ties to freedom. Because what Paul is talking about with this list is you do not need to be defined by anything that's not Jesus. So that's really point number one. Don't find your freedom and your definition of whether it's considered sin in your mind or not by anything outside of Jesus. Don't be defined by your sexuality. Don't be defined. I mean, greed, honestly, Donald Trump is defined by greed. Politically, I know I'm, just, I'm, gonna, I'm taking the pain off of one topic. I'm bringing up the other. But that's really, you know, the song to the apprentice is money, 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 you know. And he's walking. I mean, he would look at this list and go, yeah, I'm greedy. He would hang that shingle out. We all, at times, may hang out certain shingles on this list. That's what Paul's warning us about. Make sure, not that you don't struggle. Let me be clear. Homosexuality is not a struggle with same-sex attraction. It's the practice of it unrepentedly. There's a difference, right? And with every item on that list, you can say the same thing. Um, it's an over-desire for something to, be complete, to complete you. It's an over-desire for something to, to define you. Okay, that was hard. And it's 17 minutes into the sermon. Should we just wrap it up? It'll be the shortest sermon ever. So you are, this passage teaches about freedom from guilt. And I need to make sure I hit this point because Paul is saying regardless of what practices you've engaged in in the past, verse 11, you, some of you were these things. In other words, you lived under that rubric, that, that defining point, that shingle, and now you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. What's he saying? You are a new creation. Sanctified is a great word because we think of sanctification as growing in holiness, and it means that, but initially it means having been set apart for a different use. So, in, in, in holy uh, um, rituals, whatever the words are, you would take a, a, an ordinary item like a bowl or a cup and you say this is going to be used now in the sanctuary or the church or the temple and you would do ceremonial washings and from that point forward that item was set apart once and for all for that use and that's what's happened to us we have been set apart to be part of the kingdom of heaven that's who we are once and for all and when that really sinks in if that issue if that if that theology really bakes in so that's another political term. Um, then it will move you. It will change you. And for some, it might move you so far that you begin to live under another false view. And so I'm going to move into point two, that we have freedom from the pollution of sin. Okay, the first one is freedom from the guilt of sin. Now we're talking about the freedom from pollution of sin. The difference between these words are, I think you get them in everyday life. If there was a river that flowed through Stillwater that had a lot of pollution, and the government came and put up signs saying, this has now been, you know, this is now going to be in a, a zone that you cannot trespass anymore. It's going to be called, you know, what's that? Lake, okay, Lake Boomer. I don't know, is there politics behind Lake Boomer? Is it polluted? So they put a fence up around Lake Boomer, and they say, yes, it has the name of our enemy. Uh, that's okay. We're going to clean it up. 
Well, at first, there's the legal restraint, right? It's now a different thing. You can't go, it can't be dirty. You're not allowed to go in. We're taking care of it. But there's still the need to clean the pollution out. The actual physical need of cleaning pollution. So when we are saved, Paul is not teaching that all of our flesh, all of our desire life, all of our struggles are gone. Okay? There's still struggle. So there's this pollution. And going back to the cookie diet, how do you handle cookies? You want a cookie, so you eat one, so what do you say? All things are lawful. Right? And that's what Paul's dealing with. See those little quotes in verse 12? All things are lawful, end quote, but not all things are helpful. Then he says it again. All things are lawful. Then he comes back, but I will not be enslaved by anything. What's going on there is Paul is most likely aware of them taking slogans, probably from his teaching, that have gone too far. Right? We know that, uh, for example, in Romans 5, he explains the gospel to such a degree that at the very beginning of Romans 6, he says, I assume somebody hearing how beautiful the gospel was just presented will say, so I can go sinning all I want that grace may abound? And then Paul says, by no means. It's very similar to what's happening here. That for Corinthians, it's possible some of them were engaging in prostitution, that is, going to prostitutes, and they would answer the charge by saying, well, all things are lawful. I'm allowed. And then he, would, he could come back and say, but it's sin. But he doesn't. He comes back and says, but not all things are helpful. He believes it's sin. In fact, he makes that point very clear in this passage. But he's also trying to get them to understand the idea of pollution. So, do you understand, brothers and sisters, that sin is, has pollutionary properties? That when we engage in acts that are sinful, it's not just, well, I'm cleansed, I'm clean, I'm a Christian. You know, when you're, I was a kid, I always crossed my fingers. When I, did you ever do that? You could tell any lie you wanted because, hey, Jesus is not the proverbial crossed fingers. Okay? That's what I'm afraid people do. I'm a Christian. I didn't murder anyone. I just secretly looked at these websites. I just secretly did this stuff with my taxes. And Paul's saying, that's polluting you. It's not helpful. Um, We're not not very good with help. Uh, if, If you ask a child, you know, can I have another cupcake? Uh, and you say, well, you try to give them rationale. Well, you've already had three. Here's what the fourth will do. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. <laughs> Did you not listen to my reason? Paul is calling us as believers to reason with ourselves. Is this helpful? Is that even a category for you and I? Are we longing to grow in holiness? Here's another example. And this will bring the guilt and pollution together. Hand sanitizer. Everyone uses it. We at our home call it special soap. Magic soap. Sorry, thank you. Magic soap. And the problem with that term is one, one day we were sitting down to dinner and one of our daughters, I don't remember which one, they both would probably say it was me, uh, had dirty hands at supper time. Did you wash your hands? No, I used magic soap. All of a sudden we realized we've messed up. We didn't explain that, that the washing still is important even though germs, you know what I mean? Am I making sense here? You need to wash the dirt off and then the magic soap is when your hands look and pretty much are clean, but you just don't know for sure, so you'll get the, ger- the unknown germs, right? It's not to squirt on muddy hands. And then, my hands are dirty. And so I think that Paul's sort of engaging here with, like, is it helpful? Uh, but also, he asks, uh, he, he repeats the slogan and then re- and says, but I will not be enslaved by anything. 
And so, are you enslaved by sin? Do you see that property of sin? Are we aware of it? How aware of it are you? Uh, this is another, it's just not really a sin. I'm not going to confess sin in front of you right now. On the way to seminary, I got a cappuccino one time at Oncue. Now, that's sinful because they're really cruddy cappuccinos. <laughs> they're the, the kind where half the, half the pour is powder and half's the water and it tastes chemically. I don't remember what time in my life, like what was going on, but for some reason I thought I need a cappuccino, so I got that kind and put the lid on and drove away. I remember like two months later going, I've been there every morning getting that cappuccino. What happened to me? It enslaved me. I had to finally just cut it off. Like, that's horrible cappuccino. Okay. There's something in us that just follows in with things and lets things enslave us, right? And, and, and so Paul was warning us. And so as we discuss what the true Christian freedom is and we're getting to how you get it, understand it's not just freedom from guilt, but what we're longing for is actual freedom from the pollution of sin. We're trying to not be enslaved, right? We're trying not to be dragged away, right? Um, and so we come to the freedom. Um, this is an awkward term. It probably isn't going to work. But freedom, uh, the freedom we get from the gospel frees us from guilt, point number one. Frees us from pollution, but it frees us to join another. Is that weird? Okay, let me try to unpack that. Our problem with freedom is we want to be by ourselves, right? We think. That's what we really think we want, right? And yet, sexual sin and almost all sin is this longing for connection, for being known, right? We want something else. And so we have this sort of weird misunderstanding with what that connection is. And oftentimes, I think, because of some bad theology as Christians, we would say, well, I can engage in that sin and it, may, and it won't change me because when I'm done and I repent, I'll be back to where I was. And we don't realize that I've been sort of connected to that sin. And Paul's talking about the connectedness of the sin. He says in verse 15, or excuse me, verse 16, or do you not know that he who has joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Is there something about sexual sin more than other sins, but I think all sins to some degree that connects you to something? And part of that's because that's our deep longing. We really want that connection. And Paul explains that that true connection is found in Christ. Before I go there, I want to mention in verse 13 this last slogan. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And I would say, th- this, this is a puzzling statement. What is going on? And then it says, and God will destroy both, one and the other. Mo- the Greek does not put quotation marks. right? So scholars have to determine where the quote starts and ends, if it even is a quote. And here's, the, I think, the best explanation of what's going on in 13. The Corinthian church had a very bad theology of the end times. And they thought, and we find this in chapter 15, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the physical body. And so for them, their theology emerged that sort of all the stuff we do here, including what we eat and even sexual practices and everything else, when we die, it's wiped clean, it's gone. There's no future consequence. So I can do whatever I want here. The cross fingers behind the hand back, right? And so it says, 
Here's the full quote. Verse 13, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. End quote. And then Paul responds, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. In other words, they're excusing going to see prostitutes or whatever sexual encounters they were having by saying, what's the big deal? It's like when you get hungry, you eat food. Then you're not hungry anymore. You get sexually aroused, you go do your thing, and then it's taken care of, and you don't do it anymore. Both are going to die in the end we go to heaven, right? Paul says, no. Not right. The body's going to be resurrected. So whatever your view of freedom is, it needs to understand the fact that when you think freedom, most people who struggle with sexual sin find the freedom in the thing itself, right? It's, the, it's sort of the struggle's been released for a period of time. Just like eating food, right? And Paul is saying, no, it may appear that way, but you're actually allowing this merging to happen, this kind of connectingness. I read Spider-Man comics as a kid, especially Amazing Spider-Man. Remember the black suit? It went from the red and blue, that was awesome, to black, and that was pretty cool. And then at some point, apparently the black suit became him and started taking over Spider-Man, right? Sin has that property. It, be, you, it joins you. It doesn't just pollute you. It becomes connected and it becomes who you are. And so whatever your view of freedom is, you have to recognize that sin goes beyond just crossing your fingers or even just dying. Okay? I feel like I'm just, I'm just digging a pile I've got to get out of. Or how do you say that? Building a... Um, and here's what I mean. How does that connect to... Okay. We in America, Christianity, I'm talking to the church now. You're a Christian, you believe the Bible, you worship Jesus. You and I often, if we're not careful, have bought into this idea that in this life we're just passing through. And then we die. And then in heaven we're all perfect. Right? Everything's great. And I'm not saying that's not completely true. But it doesn't seem to be completely biblical. In other words, Paul is constantly saying, if you understood the future, and if everything you did was oriented toward, toward Jesus and the coming of the kingdom, then you would not partake in sin now. There's a connection there. It's not a threat. We all know we're going to have... Our guilt's removed. We're going to heaven. I'm not changing the gospel. But somehow we don't recognize that heaven is breaking in. And we are already in eternity. When Jesus rose from the grave and walked around, the disciples didn't go, what's the afterlife like? Right? When the transfiguration happens, Jesus is in His glorified body. There's Moses and Elijah. Peter didn't say, what's the afterlife like? He built tents and said, let's bring in the eschaton. Let's bring in heaven now. Christian, that is our call. We are set aside We've been sanctified, we've been washed, we've been created as new, and we've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, right? And Paul is saying, you are now a new creation. And everything you and I do is either married and bringing in, married to Jesus and bringing in the future, the bridegroom, or we're living like the past. That's what Paul is urging. That's his defining point. Because he says in verse... 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He doesn't say someday. So now the question is, do you realize 
everything you do right now has the opportunity of bringing Jesus in to bear, to shape the kingdom around you. I'm afraid that most of us think, no, listen, I'm not going to steal. I've got that part. I'm not going to murder, whatever your definition of that is. Okay, I won't have any gross sexual sin as far as I can try. But other than that, I'm just going to go to church and do my Christian life and go forward. I'm not saying you guys. I'm saying that's the view of the church at large. And we have such a small view of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. And Paul is saying, you are, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Your body's going to be raised again. What you do now matters. It will be redeemed, but it matters. So let's not engage in things like premarital sex. Why do Christians constantly harp on that? That is so old. That is so 1950s. Which everybody was having premarital sex in 1950. And the reason is, all I can say is an illustration, and I know, I mean, I haven't even planned this illustration, but it's the one, I'm sitting with a student in RUF, and she is distraught. She came to me from a Christian home in Mississippi. She's in Fort Collins, and she had a boyfriend. And she loved this boyfriend, and they broke up. And she was distraught. And I'm not, that is a bad, that was a bad thing. But I started to ask her about being distraught and what was going on. She said, well, I said, tell me, had you all been physical? Well, we kissed. And you're, and I'm like, you're this upset. Like, and we were talking a little further. This is not going to always be the case. You can only kiss and have a really sad breakup. And I understand that. But there was something missing. And finally, I just said, are you, are you sure that's all you've done? I'm just curious. Turns out she and her boyfriend lived together their entire freshman year in her dorm room and played married. Right? And so I'm sitting here going, I'm not trying. That's why you're upset. It's like a divorce. I'm not even trying to be funny. I would be upset too if my wife just walked out and said, what? What's the big deal? We weren't married. Because you were playing married. Again, All of this stuff sexually isn't Christians trying to be 1950s. We're trying to look at Scripture and saying there is a purpose for the body and for sex. And it's not always the way our flesh wants to engage in it. It's actually to be known and to know. Is that your view of sexuality? And more importantly, is that your view of Jesus? Is He your longing? Paul himself will later Talk about how he doesn't even take a wife, though he might want one. Right? Is it okay to say, I have these desires, but I'm going to say no right now? Even for righteous desires. Okay, so what's the cost? What's the, what's, this freedom comes to us. It's a, there's a rescue involved, right? There's a cost. Um, in verse 19, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And you are not your own. Don't tell, try telling that to millennials or baby boomers or a human being in general that's American or that's anywhere. Guess what? I've got great news. You're not your own. The Bible teaches that. What? You were bought at a price. This is why Paul is so incredulous in the last chapter, verse 6, or chapter 6, where these brothers are going to lawsuit against each other And he's like, in verse 7, he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? In other words, if I'm connected to this brother in Christ, why would I just protect my fence line, go to a court? 
be defrauded. You can have my fence. You know, you can have the extra five feet. It's okay. Why don't, and the answer is because we don't want anyone to take advantage of us. We want our rights. We want our freedom. And to be a Christian often means, Jesus, whatever you want, have your way with me. Right? But why would that be our, why would that possibly be our hope? Why would we ever respond that way? Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Why is he saying that? What's he saying? I mean, I don't know every one of you, and maybe there are some of you here who have struggled with going to prostitutes. There are others who struggle with other types of sexuality. And oftentimes we'll read that and go, there's no hope. I've already done that thing. I've gone too far here. And let me promise you, there is redemption. There is restoration. There is hope. What is Paul getting at? Think of, do you remember the story of Hosea? Hosea is a minor, what do we call the minor prophets? They wrote less. Often they did demonstrations of their prophecy. You know, Jonah is in the belly of a well. He didn't write a whole bunch. Hosea, is here's what his job was. His entire job as a Christian prophet. Ready? Go and marry a prostitute. Go and marry Gomer. Great name, too. You got a, you got a prostitute for a wife, and you got a name Gomer. Like, which is, sorry, sorry. It's got to bring up a little levity. Um... Why did God have Hosea go marry a prostitute? Because one day, someday, Jesus would come and marry a prostitute. You and I are a prostitute. The church, according to Scripture, and possibly according to our own understanding of our own sin, we are whores. And we need, and have needed, a Savior to come in who is perfectly clean, and say, I will love you. I will marry you. And I will change you. And we will become one flesh. And I promise you, if you're Gomer, and Hosea says, you're now mine, we are one, you're not going to say, that's a little too strict. You're going to say, I'm all in. I'm unfolding right into your arms. And Jesus has taken you and I into His arms. He says, I love you. He joined Himself to a prostitute. So what? Is there no... Punishment? He can marry a prostitute and not be punished? He was punished. Right? He died on a cross. When you hear that over and over, you get numb to it. But he died because he was clean and we were filthy to make us clean in him. And here's what true freedom is. Living out the rest of your existence from now for the end of eternity in union with Jesus. Resting in Him for all of your being. Is that what drives you? Is that who you are? Is that what moves you? So, I can't make everybody read this passage and go, that's exactly where I am with all these issues. All I can say is this. Here is the Christian perspective that I'm presenting to you. The reason why I can look at that list and say I will not be defined on any of those terms is because I'm defined by Jesus. He is the bridegroom. And that gives me freedom. That gives you freedom. 
to know you are guiltless in Christ. He's removing the pollution of sin. And you are the freedom He brings has married you to Him. You are in union with Christ so that you are no longer your own. You are His. No matter how you feel, don't look at your feelings. No matter what sins you committed yesterday, confess your sins before the Lord. Don't wait until you're better. Don't try to get two weeks before you confess. Maybe you string together some good days. Run to Him. Jesus, You came for a prostitute. I am the worst. I am Yours. And let that lead to rejoicing. As we take this supper in a few moments, You are proclaiming that You are in Him and He flows through You and You are now new. Let that be our defining point and not sexual sin or any sin or any label that You have. Okay? We good? If you have any questions about any of these things, Shane is available. He would love to talk to you. We've been actually both of us discussing these issues. I would love to talk to you as well. So let's have those conversations. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't know um, all the reasons why there are urges and struggles, but we do know this. You do not not promise us a struggle-free existence. You promise us a new life in you. A reality of, of inheriting the kingdom of heaven even now. Your Spirit dwelling in us. The Apostle Paul even himself had a, had a struggle so bad that he begged you to take it away. We don't know what it was. He called it a messenger from Satan. And you said that you would not take it away. That your grace is sufficient. Of course in eternity he doesn't have that sin. And of course we long for glory where all the urges are gone. All the effects of sin are gone. And the pollution. But here on earth teach us to be okay with struggle because it's always going to be there. Teach us to realize the Christian life is not about struggle-free living. That's what leads to drugs. That's what leads to all the vices. That's what leads to enslavement. But teach us to find all of our hope in you alone, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.